This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Allstate Foundation that believes good starts young. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, November 29th, the Washington Post brought together federal, state, and local policymakers, education researchers, teachers, school administrators, and advocates to discuss the changing education landscape in America. In this segment, former U.S. Secretary of Education Arne Duncan and Michigan State University President John Engler discuss the role of government in crafting education policy and look ahead to what's next on the agenda for the nation. Let's listen. We took a little while to get here, but we are here (laughs) and ready for our conversation. Uh, Good evening. I'm Christine Emba, an opinion columnist and uh, editor here at the Washington Post. And I'm joined by probably some familiar faces. Uh, We have Arnie Duncan, who is currently a managing partner at the Emerson Collective. Uh, Mr. Duncan was also Secretary of Education under President Obama uh, from 2009 to 2015. Also with us is John Engler, uh, who is President of Michigan State University. President Engler also served three terms as the Governor of Michigan from 1991 to 2003. And last year, current U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos appointed Engler to serve on the National Assessment Governing Board. So with that, I think we'll just jump right in. Uh, And my first question is actually for you, uh, President Engler. So the Larry Nassar case seems to be hopefully coming to some sort of conclusion, uh, but things are still moving. Nassar, of course, is in prison. um, And earlier this week, your predecessor uh, was arraigned on felony and misdemeanor charges related to her involvement with the schools handling the case. Uh, that was Luanna Simon. Do you have any reaction to those charges? Not really. The, uh, the investigation by the Attorney General of the State of Michigan alleged that in that course of the investigation that she misstated things to the police. And it really is uh, one of those things in an investigation, they've, they've got to apparently find something. But we'll see. Uh, her lawyers are commenting, we're not at the university. She's taken a leave from the university. But with respect to the uh, uh, the uh, Nasser variant, of course, he's been in jail for two years, and we've made very substantial changes, and we were rewarded this fall with the largest ever incoming class and the largest female class of our uh, 88,000 uh, uh, students coming in this fall, uh, 4,400 women in that class. And the changes have been made, I think, in many ways now with the debate about Title IX in the country. and. Of course, we're in the Sixth Circuit, uh, which also came down with a new set of rules that affects the nation, but uh, really will, for our four states, drive almost immediate change against the backdrop of a debate that takes place with the proposed rules that have been put forward by the department. So we've got a lot of stuff going on. I do have some questions about Title IX that I will get to in a moment, but actually following up with your thoughts on changes, um, you said to a Senate subcommittee that there were things that you would have done differently earlier in your tenure as president related to this case and maybe related to other things. What were those? What would you have done? Well, I think one of the things that we've done, we we did get the settlement next week, actually. We're 
be uh, finally executing that. The last of the legal hurdles were removed in California last week. Um, I think the changes we've made in Title IX, if we could have gotten those in place earlier, would have been a, a, a better outcome. But we now have a uh, Office of Civil Rights Title IX that has a prevention and outreach. We're doing a tremendous amount of education work on campus. All of our students have had in-person classes as they've come in as freshmen. And I think uh, all but about, I've got the count yesterday, about 300 or so have not you know, finished that in their first term at Michigan State. Uh, the other thing that we've done is expand through our programming the kind of outreach to not just the residence halls, but to our Greek system and to off-campus residents. And uh, the whole process has been streamlined. The other thing that's happened, and this is true all over America, I've been stunned to hear this from my other colleagues now, um, that the counseling services, we've added uh, about $3 million in additional personnel in the Title IX and counseling services, but this year alone, 10 new counselors and new offices. The demand for mental health services on the campus is stunning. And what was even more uh, remarkable is of those seeking those services, almost half had had services in high school, Arnie. Mm. I, w I didn't imagine that there was that much of a carryover, but uh, so that's another thing that's going on, and that's maybe apart from the whole question of sexual misconduct, sexual assault, but it's, it's part of the environment that we're dealing with on a college campus today. And were those changes that took place or that you initiated? Yes, uh, many of them were. Uh, there were some that were in process, but uh, no, we've, we've quite significantly, I view my role, I, we're in a presidential search now. We've got a strong, very 19 member, very broadly representative of the university committee search committee. The job of an interim president is to get everything ready for the next president. Mm -hmm. And we want to have that all straightened out and raised so that they walk in and that person, that new president, then can uh, go right to work on the academic uh, mission of the university, which is great teaching, uh, superb research. And uh, as a land-grant university, the service component, the giving back part, is a very much part of our ethic. So Title IX is supposed to make that uh, teaching easier and more productive for students, and you already mentioned that there are some changes happening there. Uh, Betsy DeVos has introduced uh, potentially new uh, rulings on how to handle sexual assault on campus, giving the uh, accused more rights and sort of narrowing the number of places and cases in which students can actually pursue sexual assault allegations. Um, Secretary Duncan, since we've talked to John for a while, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, do you think these are a good idea? Um, unfortunately, I always try and be honest, I think it's very odd. And her focus, whether it's on you know, calling for-profit colleges or not taking the sexual assault on campus so seriously when every survey talks about one in five uh, women being sexually assaulted on campus, that's been true forever. Um, whether it's flirting with the idea of using education money to buy guns um, for schools, uh, a panel around safety and security in schools that doesn't talk about gun violence, um, it's a very, very odd agenda. One of the things that's interesting in the changes, and again, I mentioned the Sixth Circuit earlier because they actually came out with a ruling in a case didn't involve Michigan State, it was University of Michigan. But in their ruling, um, and this was appealed in the on-bank uh, panel of the Sixth Circuit, I mean, they said we wouldn't take it up, the whole 
circuit wouldn't deal with it, but they left stand the three judges in their decision. And it, it, it mandates um, and says as a matter of constitutional right, the ability to cross-examine, for example. Yes. Now, we don't know what that exactly means yet. Um, we certainly don't think, but the Sixth Circuit almost moves us closer and closer to what you would normally think of in a courthouse, in a, in a criminal proceeding. And uh, that's, that's far away from where at least the university approach has been. And so we're, but we're under a, a mandate now to, to, in those four states to change that. Those, those are, uh, the Sixth Circuit almost goes further than where the Department of Education proposals would be. And the, the proposals of the Education Department, of course, are out for comment now. The one thing that we're not changing until it's uh, decided is the standard that we've used is one that was set uh, during the Obama administration on preponderance versus clear and convincing evidence. And so we're, we're waiting for a decision on that. But it's very clear that the hearing process is going to have to change. And there's going to have to be an ability, and, and, we're, and the risk for the university is, are, are we now to hire lawyers on both sides? Do we now have the, uh, you know, to face uh, the challenge that was ineffective counsel? Uh, it, it's also clear that the person who does the investigation is probably going to have to turn that over to an, uh, somebody else to actually be the decision maker. So the investigator can't come to a conclusion and say, I, I find a violation of the policy or I do not find it. They're going to have to investigate and then separate. Sure. This distinction between courthouse proceedings versus uh, university proceedings is an interesting one. I think we're going to see a lot of changes with that moving it's, forward. It's complicated. Um, but let's actually broaden the discussion. Uh, Arne, you mentioned that uh, DeVos's policies are curious. Um, you've obviously expressed your displeasure with many of those. Is there anything that you're actually pleased with? Um, do you support any of the changes she's made? Well, um, I won't duck that question. I'll come back to it. Let me just try and broaden it out to your point. Um, I think there's a series of goals as a country we should have um, that are not left or right or R&D. It's their nation-building goals. I think we should try and lead the world in access to high-quality pre-K and get our babies off to a good start entering kindergarten. Um, we are very proud to get high school graduation rates to all-time highs of 84%. Let be clear, that's nowhere near high enough. I would love to see the current administration set a goal of 90% high school graduation rates. The next administration, 95%. Um, I would love us to lead the world in college completion. And we did a generation ago, and about 12 other countries are now uh, out educating us, out innovating us. What you don't hear at all from this administration is any of those goals. Now, having said, I think we should have lots of vigorous debate about the best strategies to achieve those goals. And no one has a monopoly of good ideas and what works best in Montana may look different in Michigan, may look different in Chicago, may look different in, in Idaho. Um, but I would love us as a country to talk about big goals and then debate and experiment and scale what works. And all you hear, from my opinion, are small, small I would call it small ball ideological things um, that aren't leading our country to being the best educated workforce in the world, um, the most educated citizenry in the world. And I'll take one more step. Again, I'm always trying to be honest. I think that's intentional by this administration. Um, hmm. I don't think having a well-educated citizenry, a citizenry that can think critically, um, I don't think that that's in this president's best interest. Uh, president Engler, do you have thoughts on that? Well. I, I don't think anybody in Washington uh, 
would take the position that we don't want a well-educated citizenry because recognizing that uh, today with the changing nature of work, and we just did a report that uh, I was part of that uh, one of fellow Chicago and Penny Pritzker was yeah. the co-chair along with me, and we worked with the Aspen Institute on the work ahead. And uh, we talk about what needs to be done for U.S. leadership and how you uh, have to prepare for a very, very different world where innovation is everywhere. I, I think there's an arrogance in Washington about how important Washington is in the Department of Education. 90 plus percent of all the money for education is state and local money. Washington normally is getting in the way. I say this as a three-term governor. I mean, we want Washington just to leave us alone um, and let us experiment, and we often sought waivers to give us the flexibility and the freedom. Education policy in this country is really carried out at the local and state level. I am an ardent believer in national goals. I like a high graduation rate. I could say as a university president, what would be really helpful is if the graduates then were able to do college work mm -hmm. uh, in order to, in our incoming class, one in four students at Michigan State in our freshman class are persons of color. Many students came out of school districts where they, they got a degree, they got their diploma, but they're not ready for college work. And so we're doing summer programs, we're doing intensive tutoring and training in that first year of school trying to help people make the transition. These are young people with plenty of ability, great skills, great intelligence, but very, very poor preparation. So what are some of the state and local innovations or experiments that you personally would try? I have one. Arnie knows what it is. I would just like, and I'm, I know we talked in the previous panel about all of this testing. I have one requirement for public education. Let's just teach America's kids to read. I say this to a member of Nagby. Uh, one in 35% uh, of our children are proficient in reading as a nation. But if we go to the, some of the urban schools, Detroit, one in 25%. Uh, you know, we have a, if we could just do that, I, I've sort of given up and gone almost full circle on the, uh, the accountability. If we just simply said to every elementary school in America, tell us how you're doing. Can you teach the children to read? I mean, I, I think most of the people in this room, and probably anybody would take the time to tune in today and listen to us, probably their children are reading. Their children are in uh, a place where they know their school. If, if it's not the school, they're doing it at home. But the country is failing on this essential. If we simply took reading scores to Boston or Massachusetts, the best state in the country, mm -hmm. just slightly over 50%. If we got everybody in the country to where, so Massachusetts is doing it. If everybody in the country were there, we would see our international competitiveness ranking soar. So Arnie, same question for you. Uh, what would be your one innovation, local or federal, since you have the experience? Well, I'll take a couple things. So I think the fair question that the governor's asking is, what is the appropriate federal role? And I'll say there are, again, we may agree or disagree. I, I see there are three. One is a commitment to equity and the, the, the fight for civil rights, the fight for the kids that have special needs or low income, immigrant kids, ELL uh, learners. For me, I would put the, the pre-K battle in that equity bucket. I think that's a huge one. The second bucket for me is a focus on excellence. And the governor is exactly right. 
Um, we talk all about the, the high cost of college and college is too expensive. We spend $9 billion each year for high school graduates to go to college to take remedial classes. I mean, they're paying college tuition to take non-credit bearing classes for stuff they should have learned before. No one wins, taxpayers, universities, federal government, nobody wins there. So having high standards, um, I think uh, excellence has to be there. The third one I would say is innovation. And I totally respect and agree with the governor's thought about how to, you know, teaching kids to read. I would add a few other things to that, how to think critically, how to write. Um, but there's no one way to do that. And again, this is a huge country, and I had the, the, the joy of traveling to all 50 states. And um, there are many, many different ways to teach kids to read, to teach them to think critically, to teach them how to do math. And the federal government should be scaling what works and, and help. That's what we, for every challenge in education we have, and there are many, they are being solved somewhere. I've saw it all over the country, amazing teachers, amazing principals, amazing communities, business partnerships stepping up. What we don't do in education is scale. So for me, those three principles, a focus on equity, a focus on excellence, and a focus on innovation, those are things that the federal government can contribute to accelerating the rate of progress across the country. Arnie's exactly right. And, and uh, Michael Crow, who I think one of the great university presidents in the country out at Arizona State, talks about the need at the university level for personalized, individualized education. In other words, Kids think differently, they learn differently. Earlier today, uh, another group I'm a little bit involved with is the SEAD uh, commission that uh, John Bridgman was here, but Tim Shriver co-chairs at Linda Darlinghamon. Hammond. Uh, we, we've looked at the, the baggage, you know, the, in other words, the problems that people come to school with, and, and that backpack's filled with a lot of problems in their community, sometimes in their home, right in their, right in their family, but everybody shows up differently prepared, differently uh, oriented towards school. So we've got to be able to figure that out and we've got to be able to personalize this. But I absolutely believe that we can virtually teach every child in America to read. I mean, virtually. We do remarkable things with some of the special education programs for children who, who really have difficulty learning to read and yet we've, we've made some amazing progress in certain places. So I, I just believe we could do that. And if America could do that, see, we make this way too complicated and, and I, I just think, go back to a basic, basic principle and start there. And, and then we've got a lot to do. Uh, last night in East Lansing, Michigan, Cokie Roberts, they're talking about the need for civic education. Well, civic education worked a lot better if you can actually read the Bill of Rights. Fair enough. Uh, so, Honey, I'm going to tack back to you here. I mean, there are these large principles, equity, excellence, um, and even hopefully not that large of a project, but a very important one, just teaching kids to read. Mm. What is one of those specific uh, programs, something that works that you would like to see scaled? So again, I'll go to structure, not just one example. So we had, uh, we created a fund, it was called the I3 Fund, the Invest in Innovation Fund. And it was pretty radical, I actually don't think it was that radical. We gave a lot of money to programs, many programs that had lots of evidence of better teaching kids to read and increasing graduation rates and reducing dropout rates. We gave a medium amount of money to those with some evidence and we gave sort of startup grants to those that were good ideas. Um, we funded maybe six, seven percent of the great ideas that came our way. Um, we got pushback candidly both from Republicans and from Democrats because what they're used to doing is just block grants, that there's a big pie and everyone takes home their tiny slice of the pie. And so again, it doesn't matter what my ideas or President Obama's or Governor Angler's, whoever it might be, 
you show us evidence of what you're doing to do these things, we should be investing in that. And that was a hard sell on both sides of the aisle. And unfortunately, that program has gone away. But we were able to fund a lot of, a lot of programs, you know, dozens of programs that had remarkable results for increasing student achievement. What, what, one suggestion and an idea might be to say that there's tremendous interest in education philanthropy. But let's say to everybody that we're not going to give a grant on anything, not on geography, not on history, not on civics, unless the elementary schools in that school district are teaching reading at a certain level. And if you need help, maybe our money might be available for the reading, but until you bring the reading up to this level. The question is, does America think you can teach kids to read or not? That, that's, I believe it's a yes, that's my answer. Uh, if somebody says we can't, it's just too hard to teach reading, then we're gonna have to have a different discussion. But if you believe you can do it, then why don't we? And so the philanthropy ought to say, until we achieve at some level and then keep raising that bar, and otherwise the philanthropy just should help get the reading programs in place. But Aaron's right, it might be phonics for a kid, it might be whole word kind of an English reading, there's, there's, there is a plethora of programs out there. Uh, but as the group says, reading is fundamental and we're not getting it. I was actually just going to quote that, that's one of the most memorable lines from my own elementary school. Um, but you have worked with uh, our Secretary of Education closely. I mean, you've worked in Michigan, you're now on the assessment board. How, how do you think that she's doing? What is your assessment of how well our administration Well, she's did? doing very well because she is, the board is created by the Congress to be independent, and she's respected that independence. I was the chair for a year. She's just appointed a Democratic governor, former Democratic governor, Bev Perdue, to be the new chair. So she's been bipartisan there and she has supported and allowed that to be staffed and it's, it's, doing, uh, it's doing what it can, but that is a sampling of America in, in our uh, performance. And the frustration about being on the NAGBE board is we're talking about the tests that we're gonna give in 2024. That doesn't help somebody who just had a child today and that child's gonna be in school in a, you know, a little bit. Uh, it, it is a measuring stick, but it, the reform, it's how do we measure the states and the governors, and, and that's where uh, we, we need to do more. And I, you know, this question of choice, I'm, I'm pretty passionate on this idea because for the affluent, the people in this room have all kinds of choices, uh, and they take full advantage of them. I, my daughters, uh, we have triplet daughters, they, we moved out here when they were pretty young in elementary school. They went to public school and later on, they went to public or private, they went to different schools, but we had complete array of choices. Everybody else ought to have the same choices. And, and one of the things that's interesting in the charter school movement, I know there's, there's criticism, uh, but some of these charter schools are outstanding. Some of the top schools in the country, if you talk to Craig Barrett and the basic schools out in Arizona, they're right up there with a the TJ here in Northern Virginia. They're superb and those are choices. People can make choices not to go to a charter school, go back to the public school. Sometimes they, it's as simple as, I think it's safe there, I don't think it's as safe over there. But I mean, I, I trust people to make choices and I think, I, I found as a governor, when I went into some of the most depressed areas of the state of Michigan, that a parent in the most fragile family still wanted the best for their child. They want their child to succeed. And today, more and more people at all income levels understand that education remains the key and we spend before we spend the nine billion on remediation we spend 650 billion as a nation each year 
education is one of those solutions that's actually funded. We just don't get our performance. The money's worth, apparently. Arnie, let's hear from you on choice, actually. This does seem to be one of our administration's priorities when it comes to education, promoting choice. Is that something that you'd I'm a fan of public school choice. I always say, you know, great charter schools we should replicate and learn from and, you know, do more and have that learnings and innovation translate back to districts. I've also challenged, I went to the National Charter School Convention and also challenged them, some of our lowest performing schools are charter schools. So for me, we just need great options for every kid. No seven-year-old knows whether they go to a charter or a magnet or a traditional neighborhood. Do I have a great teacher? Am I safe? Does my principal care about me? We just need a lot more schools that look like that. Governor's exactly right. Every parent everywhere wants the best for their child. Doesn't matter what education they had or didn't have. Um, we have failed across the country, particularly in disadvantaged communities, to give parents the kind of education that can break those cycles of poverty. Just to sort of challenge two of ideas to throw out quickly is, for me, the biggest issue is we don't vote on education. We don't hold any elected official accountable. So whether it's mayors or governors or Congress or Senate or the president, I, it breaks my heart. You watch the presidential debates, no one ever talks about education because we as voters don't vote. Um, the midterms now, 6% of voters voted on education. And I'm going to be clear, I don't blame the politicians, I blame us as voters. If across the political spectrum we voted for those that were going to raise high school graduation rates and, you know, make college more affordable and help our babies get off to a good start in pre-K, that would change everything. We talk about education, we say we value it, we don't vote based upon it. That's an interesting question, actually, putting parents and families in charge. Speaking of accountability, I mean, because of the rise, or rather continuance of, you know, tragic school shootings, it seems that you've actually advocated that parents should hold schools accountable by boycotting. Um, well, you... Yeah, well, that's actually not quite what I said. Um, the level of gun violence in our nation is horrific. It doesn't happen in England. It doesn't happen in Canada. It doesn't happen in Japan. It doesn't happen in Australia, where my wife is from. Um, there are really difficult problems, cure for cancer, trying to put a man on Mars. Um, this is an absolute lack of political courage in our country. And again, I try to speak from the heart. I believe we in the United States value our children less than in other countries. And we've raised a generation on gun violence and mass shootings and a level of fear and trauma that most of us in this room are lucky not to have ever experienced. And I'm, working all day, every day back home in Chicago to reduce gun violence. Um, as a nation, we are absolutely backwards on this and our lack of courage. Um, this is not a school issue, to be very, very clear. 99.8% um, of kids shot doesn't happen in school. It happens in church. It happens in malls. It happens in movie theaters. It happens in their homes. Um, and we as a nation fail to protect our children. Um, we as adults have failed. And our kids are going to lead us to where we need to go. It breaks my heart that they have to do it. But for me, this is like a movement. Civil rights were led by young people, civil rights movement, the fight against the Vietnam War. And young people from Parkland, Florida, young people from Chicago, young people around the country are going to lead our country to a safer place. President Engler, do you have anything? I don't disagree. <laughs> I mean, what policies would you put in place or what have you seen that's interesting for college campuses in terms of gun safety or student safety? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a concern. I mean, part of, I think, what every campus, and I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm an interim 
president, you know, they're president, but I'm really, they'd be quick to point out back in Michigan, well, you're interim, you know, nine months and three weeks now, but who's counting? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the attention, though, that this gets in, in terms of the campus police department, the residence halls, uh, it's, it's a very serious thing. I mean, we, you, you are ever vigilant. It, and it goes back to the counseling point I made earlier, because, I mean, part of this counseling is, is it, there are efforts being made, and this is, this is on the faculty, it's on everybody to pay attention. Do we see somebody who we think might be about to have a problem? Is that problem such they might be dangerous to other people? How do we intervene? All of these are things that people are trying to pay attention to, but, but Arnie's right, and this, this unfortunately knows no limit. I mean, it's, it can be in an affluent area, it can be in an area of great poverty, it can be, it could be at any time. And so culturally, you know, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, it could be in a faith-based community, it could be in a non-faith, I mean, it, it, you know, we've seen this almost in every imaginable, I mean, we've seen it on a military established, on military institutions. So there's no easy answer for this, and it is a societal challenge. But I think there's a number of societal challenges we're dealing with today. The coarsening of the culture and the, the disappearance of, uh, of, I think, honest political discourse where we, you know, people can debate issues. I spent a lot of years in the state legislature. Uh, you know, people went at it and, you know, had these debates. You made decisions and you move on. You didn't mean that the person who won or the person who lost was better than the other or worse than the other. It's just the way the process worked and we've gotten away. It's a little bit more of a, a no-holds-barred world today. Just quickly on the gun violence issue, because the NRA has these talking points, well, that's quote-unquote hard in schools. How do you harden recess? How do you harden a sporting event? How do you har harden a bus trip to and from school or kids walking into or school? Or a congressional softball game. Or a congressional softball game. Yeah, or, or a church. Yeah. It's an absolute fallacy. We just have way too many guns, way more guns than any other society. They tell trauma surgeons, don't speak up, stay in your lane. And then a trauma surgeon two weeks ago in my hometown of Chicago gets murdered doing her job. A friend of mine who trained with her went to medical school with her was actually on duty, tried to save her life, and couldn't save her life. Um, this is one where, again, politicians, mostly Republicans, some Democrats, beholden to the NRA, um, are leading to a rate of death and trauma that doesn't exist anyplace else. This is so eminently solvable if we just had a little bit more courage. So then maybe let's end on that courageous note. In your work at the Emerson Collective, are there any big ideas on the horizon for working on this problem or any other? Yeah, to be clear, I don't have any big ideas, but the young men I work with have extraordinary ideas. And we're working with a young man, 1724, who are most likely to shoot and be shot, and that profile is one in the same. Um, we walk with them, um, we listen to them, I say all the time, they are the solution to the problem, they're not the problem. I almost never speak like this by myself. I try and take our guys with us every single day. Um, they're gonna lead to Chicago to a much, much better place because we're giving them an opportunity to transform their lives and do something positive. It's an opportunity they've been looking for. Um, we in rooms like this have been absent from them. People say, it's so great, you're giving people a second chance. I always say, I actually think for many young men, we're giving them a first chance. They never had a first chance. It's a little bit late in life. 
but um, no one has to work of us, no one has to do anything to see them step up and lead this effort to make their, their families, their blocks, their communities safer. Um, I can't tell you how inspiring it is. That's great to hear. I think we're going to have to end there. Time is up. But I want to thank you, uh, Arnie, and you, John, for joining us in this conversation. And also to thank all of you. Um, if you're interested in watching any of these segments from today or finding out about our next live events, you can check that out at WashingtonPostLive.com. Uh, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.